Well, you guys can certainly tell her about it, all right? Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 40. We are continuing in the book of Genesis, and we're almost there. We've covered a lot of ground, and uh, we are now into the 40s. There's only 10 chapters left to cover in the book of Genesis. And uh, as already mentioned, um, Pastor Chris is on sabbatical, so I get the opportunity to preach this morning, which I'm very grateful for. Um, To give you a little recap on the story, a few chapters ago we began uh, talking about the life of Joseph. And as you know, Abraham had a son, Isaac, who had a son, Jacob, who was renamed to Israel, who had how many sons? And they were all the worst. (laughs) They take their brother, Joseph, and they ship him off into slavery, slavery, right? Chapter 37, he ends up telling his brothers an oracle of God. They've already been jealous of him. They've already had hatred in their heart for him. And in an attempt to kill him, they ship him off to Egypt to a life of forced servitude. Yay. I thought growing up that I wanted brothers. <laughs> After reading this text, I'm thankful that I only had two sisters. And I'm, I'm only saying this just to embarrass her, but my mom is here. So everybody say hi. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you intentionally told me not to do that. Yep, I thought so. <laughs> All right. Then we get to chapter uh, 38, which is uh, a fun story of Judah and Tamar that Pastor Ken got to share with us. And now we have arrived at chapter 39 last week. Because Joseph is a righteous man, he rises through the ranks in Egypt and he is trusted with immense responsibility, right? He's finally getting blessed. He continually and boldly resists the promiscuous advances of Potiphar's wife. And finally, she gets to a point where she attempts to seduce him. He runs out. He completely flees, which is more than most people can do in our culture, evidently. He runs away. Then, in her scorn, she lies about him, saying that he was trying to take advantage of her. Potiphar hears about it, and he sends Joseph to prison. So much for being godly, right? (laughs) Like, I thought and thought about this story. Joseph has proven himself time and time again as an upstanding example of somebody who trusts in the Lord despite terrible circumstances he's continually found himself in. And as I read those chapters and get up to this point, I wonder what use is it? What good is waiting on the Lord? What is God doing to Joseph? Has he left him? Why does he have to live life like a roller coaster like this? Shouldn't life just be easier than it is? Really, shouldn't it? We think this way about our own lives, don't we? I'm following the Lord. Why is it so hard? There's a song that's near and dear to me, by Sovereign Grace nonetheless. Surprise, surprise. Um, And one of the lines in this song is very pointed, and it it fits very well with what's going on in the life of Joseph. The line says this, and all my questions that are unresolved don't change the wisdom of your will. I'll say that again. All my questions that are unresolved, I don't have answers for the things that I would like to have answers to, that does not change the wisdom, the perfect plan of God's will. 
We believe that, don't we? But in our moments of trial, in our moments of waiting, it's much more challenging to hold on to that and believe that truth. This is what we are going to uh, see today. This is what God starts to unveil in today's passage. As I said, your Bibles are open to Genesis chapter 40. I'm going to attempt to preach this morning on two chapters, and I'm going to attempt to do that in an amount of time where you can all still have lunch. Sound good? Charles, good? That's good. All right, let's stand together, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. My prayer this morning is that you will see how perfectly your Heavenly Father carries out His purposes in the world and also in your life. That's my prayer, that you will see how good and perfect He really is. So let us look at chapter 40 first. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed. I think I get all the dream sermons, so let's just assume if there's a dream in it that I'll be talking about it. Verse 5, And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody, in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, okay, in my dream there was a vine before me. And on the vine there were three branches and as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. And then verse 14, he says, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, Well, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the baskets on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. Rut-row, raggy. And hang you on a tree, and the birds of... And the birds will eat the flesh from you. How nice is that? 
On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet, worst verse, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. You may be seated. That's chapter 40. At the very end of chapter 39, we see that due to his God-fearing character, Joseph is placed in charge of the prison in which he is imprisoned. Yes, you heard me correctly. He's a prisoner, but he's also recognized for such character that he ends up being in charge of that prison while in prison. That's, that's correct. His character is recognized so much so that the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Now this was simply the mark of Joseph's life. We repeatedly see God's nearness to Joseph, his presence with Joseph. And this is cause for people to place their trust in him. Though blessing doesn't always look like we might have imagined, nonetheless, God is near. He is never distant to us, and so we are never alone. Now we get to chapter 40, what we just read. Time marches on, and there are two trusted officials who have wronged the king of Egypt. I would think you'd want to be on the good side of a world superpower, personally, but somehow they either committed an offense or at least were charged of an offense against the king. And so they enter into this same prison that Joseph is in. And one night, the text says, they both dreamed, each his own dream and each with its own interpretation. Now I wonder, dreams happen all the time, don't they? For most of you at least, right? Dreams happen all the time. What makes these dreams so unique? Now, I remember about two dreams every year. Okay, my memory is terrible for these. My wife gets frustrated because I fall asleep so quickly and then I, I wake up eight hours later in the exact same position and I don't know what happened. She takes much longer, I don't know, I don't know what that is because I'm already out, but she takes much longer to fall asleep and has a vivid imagination and she gets all of these dreams and yet I remember next to none of mine. I do remember, I actually had one last night. This is God's sovereignty right here, okay? I remembered one last night. Last night, I was, so on August, I think it's the 24th or the 26th, I get my braces off. You guys have no idea how excited I am about this. This has been a long road. I'm talking about waiting this morning, and I'm not even going to mention that after this. So I get my braces off coming up, and in my dream, they took the braces off, and I looked in the mirror, and they were still on. Now, if this is prophecy, I'm going to be angry, okay, because... <laughs> I'm ready to have these things. Anybody have braces out here? You guys know what I mean? Yeah. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. All right. But they, they remember these dreams, and they were very, very significant to them. It wasn't like my dream that I remember about two or three months ago. I told Andrew this and Trevor. I, okay, I remember I told you a dream, but I don't remember much of what it was. All I remember is that I was on some adventure with kids or with friends from the worship ministry or something, and then I remember being on a boat, and there was like the cliffs of insanity. Any Princess Bride fans? And I remember maybe getting launched onto them, but the funniest thing I remember is that for some reason, Missy Armstrong was the bad guy. 
in the dream. And she's like the world's sweetest human. So I'm like, this makes no sense. So my dreams have no coherency whatsoever. But these two men have dreams. And they remember them and they know that there is something significant. This means something. And in their culture, they were very aware of dreams and dream interpretation. And so really to them, they knew something was up. But you see, there was a problem. Though they know that these dreams have a specific meaning, they don't know what they mean. It's like when you buy something from Ikea. You got it. And you look at the instructions, and you're pretty sure it's some like form of Swedish hieroglyphics because it doesn't make any sense on how to put it together. This is what their dream is like. They know they've had one. They don't know what it means. And so they are distraught. They are downtrodden. And Joseph notices this. They say in verse 8, who will interpret these? And Joseph, I love his response. He simply tells them the answer. God will. Now you have to think about the Egyptians for a second. In their mind, they had a belief that there was a plurality of gods, lowercase g, right? There's many deities. So when Joseph, this Hebrew guy, says, yeah, God will tell you, they're like, oh, okay, so there's a God out there who will do that. Good. They don't know what Joseph knows about him being the one true God yet, but they're okay with the idea of the interpretation. So Joseph, without any mention to any Egyptian practices of divination or sorcery, simply says, God will interpret it. I serve him, so tell them to me. And then you get back to the story. The two dreams are told, and sure enough, Joseph interprets the meaning of them. He begins with the cupbearer, and for him, this is tremendous news. He is going to get restored back to his former position. Maybe he was accused of something that he didn't do, and Pharaoh's about to find out. We don't know. But either way, if it's that, or if Pharaoh's going to have tremendous amounts of mercy on him and give him another chance... That's exactly what happens. He is indeed restored to Pharaoh, gets to have that privileged position of being the cupbearer of the king, which we don't understand in our culture very well, but that's a very highly esteemed position. So there is much rejoicing. He is freed from his charges, and then the baker thinks to himself, well, I want in on this too. Let's get the good news train rolling. So he hears of this good prognosis and decides to share his dream with Joseph, eager for a similar word. But to his utter horror, finds out that he is going to lose his head, be hung on a tree, and have birds gorged on his flesh. Wow. I think he, maybe he thought Joseph had the spiritual gift of discouragement. Not quite sure. So what happens three days later... Pharaoh's birthday comes and he is pleased to have this feast. He brings both men in and all happens just as Joseph interpreted. But here's the sad reality of this story. Verses 14 and 15. Joseph just had one plea. He just reached out and said, just, just do, do one favor for me. Could you just do one thing? Just remember me when it's well with you. And he tells this to the cupbearer. Remember me. And please, just do me this kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house because I've been wrong. That's why I'm here. I haven't done anything wrong. Only remember me. Though he is innocent of any wrongdoing in all these affairs, 
verse 23 confirms, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Meanwhile, there's rejoicing in the house of Pharaoh, but all the while, Joseph, a righteous man, remains in prison and forgotten. He remains waiting, wondering, how's God going to do this? Is God going to do this? What? You know, you know in your moments of weakness how you start to get kind of crazy thoughts and wonder, is this really true? Are God's promises really trustworthy? The text doesn't say that Joseph felt that, but I could imagine in the two years he's sitting in that jail from this point on, I can imagine the low lows, can't you? High highs maybe, trusting, but maybe there's some low lows. I was thinking... Waiting is perhaps one of the most difficult things for any of us to do, isn't it? Maybe it's just me. I doubt it. My kids don't like to wait. I don't like to wait. People I know don't like to wait because by nature we're all impatient, right? We're quick to indulge our desires when available to us and we have a hard time with silence, especially the silence of God. If God's plan involves more time than we would prefer, we get frustrated, we get angry, and oftentimes we even get bitter and our hearts continually harden. Because God's perfect plans involve things we don't see or understand, we often do a certain type of waiting, and I'm calling it unwilling waiting. You ever done that? If it's the Lord's will, you will wait though it might be an unwilling or a reluctant or a frustrating waiting, but you will still wait. I've got an example uh, in my own life of this. If any of you know what the last year and a half has held for my immediate family, it's been a year of just waiting to see what God's going to do. And there have been times where we had strong faith and where we know what he's doing, this is clear to us, and there have been other times where it's just kind of sounded like crickets. What's going on? About a year and a half ago, my wife and I decided to sell a home that we loved. This might feel like deja vu to you guys because we have sold so many houses since we've been here. <laughs> but we sold a home that we really loved in a location we really loved in order for some more financial stability to pay off our student debt. And the Lord was faithful to us in all of that. But we didn't know what was going to come from it. We didn't know what God would end up doing in our lives. And so we were like, waiting, which isn't fun. We waited, and I, I can tell you today that we have seen God's hand of generosity, his hand of kindness, his hand of really his perfect timing. We've seen all of that in the last year and a half, and just earlier this week, surprise to me, we got occupancy on our new house. Yeah, and it just so happened to be the week I have to preach. So, God's timing is perfect. I don't necessarily understand that, but at least I have a great illustration for this. Um, God has worked all of these things out, and he, he tends to do this, and we tend to forget. At many times, we waited well, as I said, but much of the time, it was just plain hard. But let's look at the life of Joseph. Though he was imprisoned and forgotten, he waited well. From all that we can glean in this text, he continued that whole time in the path of faithfulness to God, the path of trust. 
trusting in the goodness of the heart of God and trusting in the goodness of God's timing. There is nothing, there is no detail, there is no happening, no event that has ever come to pass that has taken the Lord by surprise. Nothing. Not in the world, not specifically as we zoom in in each one of your lives. He knows. He knows exactly what is going on. He's not surprised by these things. Therefore, if you must wait, he has good reasons for your waiting. And he will sustain you in the waiting. This is how Joseph waited. When Joseph was forgotten by man, he knows that he has never been forgotten by God. In fact, it's the Lord's presence with Joseph that has been his distinction all along. In chapter 39, the previous chapter, four times, verse 2, verse 3, verse 21, and verse 23, it mentions in some way, shape, or form that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord's presence was near to Joseph. This is what has marked him. The Lord has never abandoned him, and he's certainly not going to leave him in time of trouble. The Lord, as the scriptures say, is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And that is really, really good news for people like you and me, who are often brokenhearted and who are often crushed in spirit. He is near. Amen? He is near to us. So, when you feel forgotten, remember this truth. God doesn't leave or abandon his children. Ever. Never has he and never will he. We sang, you were, you are, you will always be. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. He will never leave or abandon his children. But you and me, you know, we're quick to believe lies that are contrary to the word of God, aren't we? In our times of temptation, it's very easy to believe things that we know aren't true. We're blinded by our circumstance, and so we often think that God is gone, uh, that we're left alone. We believe that he's good in our heads, correct? But sometimes we wonder at night if his goodness maybe just doesn't extend quite far enough to get to me. We've all thought those things at times. We wonder if here, right now, with what I'm going through, if he still knows and he still cares. And if you've ever thought that, there's some good news. You're human, and God has mercy and patience for that. There's even better news than the fact that you're human, though. It's that the word of God is true. And this means that we can allow the word of God to correct our thinking. I get this illustration from um, Romans chapter 12, but where, where Paul talks about the renewing of our minds being washed through the water of the word. I mean, we live near Lake Michigan, right? We can just imagine being at the beach and seeing those waves continually crash on the shore over and over and over again, just steady crashing on the shore. And that's what we need to let the word of God do to our minds. In our times where we're tempted to believe things that we know are not true, we need to remember these waves, right? He knows. He's good. He's in control of this. He is going to use this for your good and for his ultimate glory. And then repeat, he's good. <laughs> and hold on to these promises. That's why we read the scriptures, because without it, these truths tend to fall out of the back of our heads, and we forget very quickly what is true. Now we're going to move on to chapter 41. And I don't normally make people do this, but 
I want to read the vast majority of this chapter, and I would like you guys to stand again, which is convenient because this is normally the sleepy time in the sermons too. So we're going to stand yet again for God's Word, open to chapter 41 now. Let the first four words sink in. After two whole years of waiting on God's promises, two whole years, and this doesn't count the previous time Joseph was in prison, okay? This is after the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. After two whole years, all of a sudden, who has a dream? Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile River. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plumps cows. I'm thinking this is the beginning of where the Chick-fil-A slogan started. You know, eat more chicken, not cows. So that's just food for thought. And then it says, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but here's the problem. There was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. That's the problem of the text. And then, out of the blue, you have verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer, remember him? Remember what he forgot for two whole years and all of a sudden just pops into his brain? The chief cupbearer says to Pharaoh, um, I remember my offenses today. Whoops. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker, God rest his soul, in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I love Joseph's response. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed on the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I woke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears then withered 
thin and blighted by the east wind sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven good years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And, just so you know, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authorities of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. Just four more verses. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh told Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is no, none, so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves at your command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. You may be seated. What a dramatic twist in the story. Years of waiting, years of waiting, and now we see God's plan start to unfold. We see that Joseph was not indeed forgotten, for God knew all of this. He knew every single detail would come to pass. And because we often hear the glories and the details, I'm just going to point out a few of them as we cruise through this chapter. First of all, God gives Pharaoh these dreams back to back, predicting and ultimately confirming what was to come. He suddenly awakes from this peculiar nightmare, his scar prickling, and phew, it was just a dream. But it troubles him deeply because he knows it means something. This is not an ordinary dream. So let this sink in. The king of the world's superpower calls together all of his magicians and all of his wise men. He brings together this incredible cabinet. And despite all their knowledge and their plethora of diviners calling upon their lowercase g gods, the text says there was none who could interpret them? None. The cupbearer and the baker, if you remember, they had no one but lowly prisoners to ask. Pharaoh had all the power to call upon the entirety of Egypt at his disposal, and there was none who could do it. Pharaoh's gods had failed him. 
Pharaoh, if, in, if you understand Egyptian culture, who was believed to be God himself, has found something that the God Pharaoh doesn't know, cannot know. There's a limit to the knowledge of so-called gods, but there is not a limit to the knowledge of the one true God. Verse 9, as I already mentioned, the cupbearer speaks up, for he's all of a sudden remembered something. Oops! <laughs> I was probably supposed to do that. That's been not a good gig for him for a couple years. He tells him that every detail of their dreams came about, and so it all happened exactly as Joseph said. He says, you ought to give this guy a try. So Joseph is called, he shaves, he presents himself before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him of his plight. And what is Joseph's response? No hype, no worry. He calmly states, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. As I already mentioned, hasn't Pharaoh already consulted all the gods? Hasn't he already consulted all of his superior deities, these people who are going to help and figure all of this out? Who in the world could this Hebrew slave know? We know the rest of the story, don't we? And so we know that this is the one true God, God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen, even down to dreams. Pharaoh recounts these dreams, and God, through Joseph, interprets these for him. And he begins to unveil his plan to redeem his people, his plan to reveal his heart of rescue and compassion and of power to Joseph and to Pharaoh. And it all starts to click. It all starts to make sense. According to the dream, there was about to be seven years of terrible famine, right? This famine would be so severe that it would cause utter disaster for the Middle East. They would be without food, people would starve, people would die, and now God reveals to pagan Pharaoh what he is about to do. He says, before this famine occurs, <laughs> there's going to come these seven years of tremendous blessing. And there's a reason I'm sending those to you. You know, usually when we have abundance, I mean, we do live in America, so we have lots of abundance, right? Usually when we have abundance, uh, food goes to waste, it gets moldy in the fridge, it squand we squander it, uh, maybe it rots, people get carefree about that, no big deal, why worry about tomorrow, today's fine, we're going to be taken care of. We live in America, right? Grocery stores always have food. Pretty simple. Why save up for a rainy day? The economy's good. Here's what I think is happening. Seven years of plenty, seven years of that becoming the norm, and then all of the sudden, they're going to be lured into a stupor, and they won't be ready for the terror that's to come. And for that, God has provided a way to show his immeasurable power and glory. In all of his perfect wisdom, he reveals this to Pharaoh. He confirms it with two dreams and says that this meaning is fixed by God, and he will shortly bring it about. And then he wisely tells Pharaoh to put a man of understanding over the land to prepare well. I wonder who that's going to be. You see how God writes this story? I bet Pharaoh's jaw is kind of dropped right now. And the cupbearer is like, hey, you lifted up my head. Let me pick up your jaw. Okay? Because he's stand, standing before him is one man that could do what everybody else in Egypt could not do. And this man's distinction, everybody knows it, is that 
the Lord was with him. His spirit was with him. He has the presence of the Lord with him. And because of this, Joseph gets exalted. This man serves a God of wisdom and power that puts all of Pharaoh's deities to shame. I want you to read the rest of the chapter on your own today to pick up the rest of the details, but I'll gloss over and summarize. Joseph gets exalted. He becomes vice-regent of Egypt. He ends up having two sons while in Egypt. And he saves Egypt, essentially. He, he saves all the bounty from the years of plenty because then the famine hits and it's bad. Now, this is what I think is so great about this story. This is what I think is so great. Guess who's coming around the bend? You probably know the story. Guess who's coming around the bend? You know, God has this chosen people, this, this, this man named Abraham that he chose, and after him, uh, he had a son named Isaac, right? And he had a son named Jacob, who was renamed to, who had how many sons? And they were the worst, right? They were the worst, except for one of them that got sold into slavery, and the reason why they were the worst is because they hated their brother so much after hearing those two dreams that they're one day going to bow before the favorite brother. And that angered them so much that they sold their brother off into slavery so that they would never, ever have to see him ever again. Guess who gets the last laugh? God gets the last laugh. You know that he's committed to humbling the proud? And it's not just Joseph's brothers, it's you and me too. God is very committed to bringing us low so that we can see from down in the pit how incredible and excellent he really truly is. He's okay with doing that to you. And that's his love for you. Just around the bend is this little family. They live in Canaan. And from this family, God is going to do wondrous things. In thinking on how to apply these two chapters, I was thinking, uh, thinking of Joseph. Uh, most of the people in the Old Testament are not characters we want to emulate very much, right? Right? But Joseph, on the other hand, is consistently seen as a man who fears God, whom God is with, and one who waits upon the Lord and trust in, trusts in his promises even when it's hard. And then at the right time, God starts to unveil this perfect plan to him, the plan for his people. And I think there are many reasons why, and here are some of the highlights. I think God was committed to show Pharaoh that he alone is the one true God overall. If you don't see that strongly enough here, look at the first 14 chapters of Exodus. See how God does that in devastating ways. I think this is also to fulfill the promise given to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis that his people will have to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. This is exactly the vehicle that God sends to get the family down in Egypt to prepare them for 400 years of slavery. The suffering's not over, but he has reasons for this. God's mighty right hand must be revealed in a way that will shut the mouth of pagans for years to come. And that's what happens in the book of Exodus. I think God was even showing Joseph something. I think he was showing Joseph that he's always, always good. Even though he might have to wait to see that goodness, he's always good. 
I think this was also to allow the land of Canaan, which was the promised land, to get so wicked that God's justice and power would be seen as holy and pure and perfect when the book of Joshua starts and the conquest of that land begins. Only when their sins had reached their fullest height does God finally say, I'm done with them. I think, as I already alluded to, that God did all of this to humble a group of jealous brothers, demonstrating, demonstrating that the anger of men will never, ever produce the righteousness of God. That's James 1.20. And I believe this was ultimately to show, to show us that God is always, always working behind the scenes for his glory and for our good in all that he does. All of it. Now I think this is where this is where this gets difficult for us. Many of us believe God exists. I think most people in this room are here at a church because you believe God exists, that he's real. I also think most of us believe he's powerful. We look at creation and it simply tells us, wow, whoever did this is incredible. The amount of order and beauty and complexity there, it's incredible. But too often, I think that many of us fail to trust this God. I think we are tempted to believe that he mustn't really be that good. We wonder at times why our lives look like, the, look like they do. Why someone else always seems to have it better. Why the attempts that we make to follow the Lord are met consistently with resistance and opposition at every turn. I want to remind you of this truth that I glean from, from this passage. God is completely, thoroughly, consistently, and impressively, and altogether good. That's the God that we are singing to when we gather on Sunday mornings. He's real, he's powerful, yes, but do you know he's more good than you could ever imagine? Goodness finds its very definition and origin in who God is. There's no goodness apart from him. It all originates within God. And because of that, we can trust and wait upon this God with whatever we're going through. His heart beats for his children with compassion, not judgment. That has been paid for on the cross. For us, his children, his heart passionately beats with goodness. He's working out every detail of the universe perfectly, and that includes every detail of your life. Everyone. And I believe God does this so that one day, every knee of every human will bow before him in heaven and on earth and under the earth, will bow before him in utter awe and say, Wow, is he good. This is the God that we serve and worship. The God who is perfect in every way, who is loyal and faithful and trustworthy, never abandoning his children, always providing and taking care of us in the moments of our waiting. You know, God is not the God of the deists. If you're not sure what deism is, deism is the belief that there is a God and that he exists, but he's kind of far off. In the words of the infomercials, you know, the crockpot, he said it and forget it. All right, let it run on its own. I set up enough rules and laws, it'll be fine. People who believe that believe in a distant, 
cold, hard-hearted, and ultimately hateful God. They don't believe that God is good. That is not the God of the Bible, and that's good news. We serve a God who is altogether good. How good is he, you might ask? In the book of Romans, we see this beautiful truth. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? At the right time, Christ came into the world and died for the ungodly. That's what Romans 5, 6 says. After years of silence and waiting in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God enters into history in the incarnation of Jesus, the God-man put on flesh. And he did this, the Father did this, so that there would be a way for us to be rescued, forgiven, and restored into a right relationship with God the Father. Similarly to the life of Joseph, the life of Jesus, who is the perfect servant, didn't always appear to be blessed. You know the story of the cross. Jesus was mocked, he was ridiculed and scorned and ultimately crucified for our sins because he had not done a single thing wrong ever. Isaiah 53 tells us that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Jesus always acted in perfect obedience, trust, and love for God the Father, even when that led him to experience the suffering and the terrible pain of the crucifixion. He didn't always appear to be blessed, did he? But there's good news. On the third day, he was proven innocent, wasn't he? On the third day, he was vindicated by his father, and death had no hold on him. He rose in glory, and the father gave him the name above all other names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Jesus is the conqueror of sin and death. He is. I want the band to come forward at this time and lead us in a closing song. And as they come forward, I just want to ask a simple question. How are you doing with your waiting? Are you waiting on the Lord? If you don't know him, are you found in him? Have you ever been? God wants your trust today in his son because he is fully trustworthy in all of our waiting. He is not merely one of many options. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And by his spirit, his perfect goodness compels our hearts to love and wait upon this perfect savior, the perfect one. This is the God we serve. And now we will get to sing to him.